Hello, and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details podcast. I am your host, Sarah, coming in solo today. Just wanted to give you a heads up warning if you were expecting the duo of Sarah and Darcy. She will be back shortly, I promise. She's just taking some time off to take care of herself and some of her schoolwork. So, Let's jump right into today's episode. I've got a couple of updates on some cases that we previously covered. We had the Jeffrey Epstein case that we covered last year, I believe it was, and there is an update on that case. We did cover off on an article a few days ago about J.P. Morgan being sued for supposedly hiding Jeffrey Epstein's expenses that were going through that bank. But this is the latest, the twist in J.P. Morgan's Epstein fight And this was written by Dan Ennis. The U.S. Virgin Islands last week accused J.P. Morgan of keeping the disgraced financier as a client after he was convicted in 2008. Days later, this attorney general was fired. J.P. Morgan Chase and the Deutsche Bank asked a Manhattan-based federal judge Friday to dismiss lawsuits filed in November by alleged victims of disgraced financier Jeffrey Epstein. Jane Doe 1 is a survivor of Epstein's sexual abuse, and she is entitled to justice. But her claim is directed at the wrong party and thus is meritless, J.P. Morgan says in its filing. The two lawsuits are seeking unspecified damages for violations of sex trafficking and racketeering laws and come after New York passed a law allowing abuse victims to sue even if statutes of limitations have expired. The plaintiffs allege Epstein's sex trafficking enterprise could not have existed or flourished without the bank's complicity. These victims were wronged by many, but not just Epstein. He did not act alone, Bradley Edwards says, who was a managing partner at Edwards Pottinger, a law firm representing the plaintiffs, and this was said in a written statement in November. J.P. Morgan and Deutsch on Friday asserted that they had no duty to protect the women from Epstein. The complaint plainly established that it was Epstein's conduct that was the direct cause of the victim's injuries, not the bank, Deutsch Bank argued. Deutsch's lawyers said the complaint gives no factual allegation that the bank knew or should have known about Epstein's sex trafficking. Further, the claims did not come close to adequately alleging that the bank was part of this circle of abuse. The bank was providing a routine banking service to a client, nothing more, the attorneys argued. David Boyes, a lawyer for the women, told Rutgers he is disappointed in the bank's continuing effort to avoid responsibility for their role in the expansion and perpetuation of Jeffrey Epstein's sex trafficking ring. That, however, was not the only Epstein-related legal action filed over the holiday. The U.S. Virgin Islands days earlier sued J.P. Morgan Chase accusing the bank of providing banking services to Epstein after he was convicted of sex charges in 2008 and failing to report suspicious activities. J.P. Morgan knowingly, negligently, and unlawfully provided and pulled the levers through which recruiters and victims were paid and was indispensable in the operation and concealment of the Epstein trafficking enterprise, the lawsuit said. The bank should have known about Epstein's illegal activities on an island he owned in the territory and should have reported them as part of an anti-money laundering due diligence, the lawsuit added. J.P. Morgan facilitated and concealed wire and cash transactions that raised suspicions of or were in fact part of a criminal enterprise whose currency was the sexual servitude of dozens of women and girls in and beyond the Virgin Islands, the lawsuit said. In a twist, days after the Virgin Island lawsuit, the territory's governor, Albert Bryan, fired Denise George, the attorney general who filed the suit. Bryan had been frustrated with George for some time. People familiar with the matter told the publication and the J.P. Morgan lawsuit, which George reportedly filed without first informing Bryan, 
served as the final straw. The Virgin Islands lawsuit aims to force J.P. Morgan Chase to return profits from its business with Epstein and his companies and to pay unspecified damages. George claimed J.P. Morgan Chase's willingness to do business with Epstein unfairly enriched it at the expense of other banks. George said her office conducted an investigation into Epstein's activities and presented the findings to J.P. Morgan in September. A J.P. Morgan spokesperson declined to comment to the New York Times and Bloomberg. The Virgin Island lawsuit comes roughly a month after George and the Epstein estate agreed to settle a 2020 civil racketeering case for about $105 million. That includes $80 million in repayments to the government for tax benefits Epstein inappropriately obtained, and about half the proceedings from the $55 million sale of Epstein's island. Epstein, who died in jail while awaiting trial on sex trafficking charges in 2019, was a client of J.P. Morgan from 1998 to 2013 and of Deutsche Bank from 2013 to 2018. Both banks have said they ended their relationship with Epstein after the Miami Herald published allegations about Epstein's abuse in 2018. I suspect this one will continue to unfold in the court system as well. We will keep you all posted. And then one more update was the Lori Vallow case, which we covered some time ago as well. This story was written by Hannah Syriac. And Lori Vallow gives notice of alibi and Chad Daybell seeks delay in trial. Ahead of a trial set for spring, Lori Vallow is asking to meet with Chad Daybell to discuss their options. According to the East Idaho News, Vallow gave notice of an alibi, and her attorney asked the judge to not consider capital punishment in her case because, as you know, she is eligible for the death penalty. J.J. Vallow and Tylee Ryan Vallow's children went missing in September 2019. Their bodies were later found on June 9, 2020, in the yard of Vallow's husband, Daybell. Vallow and Daybell were investigated for the children's deaths, along with the deaths of their former spouses. They were both charged with conspiracy to commit first-degree murder and grand theft by deception for the deaths of Tylee Ryan and J.J. Vallow. They were additionally charged with first-degree murder for the deaths of Tylee Ryan and J.J. Vallow. Both Vallow and Daybell faced separate charges as well. Vallow was indicted in the state of Arizona for conspiracy to commit first-degree murder related to the death of Charles Vallow and grand theft related to Social Security survivor benefits for the care of Tylee Ryan and J.J. Vallow that were appropriated after the children went missing and were found deceased. Daybell was charged with first-degree murder in the death of Tammy Daybell. East Idaho News recently reported that Vallow's attorney filed a motion for Vallow and Daybell to meet ahead of the trial. Since Daybell was arrested June 9, 2020, the couple has only spoken one time. They are asking for unrecorded conversations to discuss their options, which I doubt that's going to happen. But Lori Vallow provides documentation of an alibi in the notice of alibi filed on January 5th. Vallow's attorneys claimed that Vallow was in her apartment when her children died and that she was in Hawaii when Tammy Daybell died. The alibi said Lori Vallow was in her apartment complex in Rexburg, Idaho, when J.J. Vallow and Tylee Ryan died in the apartment of Alex Cox in Rexburg, Idaho. Defendant was Melanie Gibb, David Warwick, and or Chad Daybell. Lori Vallow was in Hawaii when Tammy Daybell died at the home of Chad Daybell in Salem, Idaho. Defendant was Melanie Bordeaux and or Audrey Baratiero. The children's remains were found on Chad Daybell's property. Vallow was arrested in Hawaii February 20th, 2020, after she failed to meet the deadline to return her children to Idaho officials. 
Her children had been missing for two months at that point. Ballow's attorneys, James Archibald and John Thomas, have argued that she is ineligible for the death penalty. In a motion filed January 4th, reviewed by the Desert News, Archibald and Thomas argued that she was not a participant in the deaths as a conspirator or otherwise, and could not have had the foreknowledge that her children, Tylee Ryan and J.J. Ballow or Tammy Daybell, would end up dead. Further, there is nothing in the record to show that Lori Daybell showed reckless disregard for human life, as the Tyson court requires for accomplice liability. She was indicted on charges of murder in the first degree and conspiracy to commit first degree murder, both of which carry the death penalty as a possible option. In a previous motion filed January 2nd, her attorneys argue that she is not eligible for the death penalty because the death penalty should be ruled as unconstitutional in this case due to prosecution not narrowing down broad options for a jury to consider the death penalty. These motions will be heard in front of District Court Judge Stephen Boyce on January 19th. Chad Daybell's lawyers motion to delay trial. While Daybell and Vallow are scheduled to be tried jointly on April 3rd, Daybell's attorney, John Pryor, filed a motion to delay the trial until April 2024. In this motion filed on January 3rd, reviewed, Daybell's attorney argues that his defense team will not be prepared for the April 2023 trial. Pryor said his team needs more time to interview witnesses, collect information, and review Daybell's life history. According to the filing, this motion will be heard in front of Judge Boyce January 19th in Fremont County. It's all very interesting, and we will continue to keep you guys posted on that as well. And then we are going to jump into the main case for the day. We're going to talk about the University of Idaho student murders that recently occurred in Moscow, Idaho. This case has been pretty big in the news lately, and there have been a lot of updates, and I'm going to try to cover off on the majority of them in the podcast today. So to begin with, the city of Moscow was located in north-central Idaho along the border of Washington state. The town has a population of roughly 25,000 and is the home of the University of Idaho. This is the state's land-grant institution and its primary research college. The city contains about 65% of the county population and serves as an agricultural and commercial hub for the Palouse region. Originally settled by miners and farmers, the first permanent settlement, outside of the Native Americans that is, placed in 1871. Because plentiful camas bulbs, a favorite for pigs, were very well known in the area, the area was known as Hog Heaven for many years, but officially became Moscow in 1875. There is no known evidence or a known connection to the Russian city with the same name. Rather, historians believe that the name came from the Native American word Moscow, which is M-A-S-C-O. Railroads soon helped boost the population in this little town until Idaho officially became a state in July 1890. There are 6.85 square miles of land in Moscow, and it is on the Columbia River Plateau. The city itself sits on the boundary of the Palouse grasslands and wheat fields, as well as the conifer forest at the foot of the Rocky Mountains to the east. The climate is moderate in the summer and spring and can be cold in the winters due to the altitude. With an abundance of arts, culture, and outdoor recreation, the city has long been considered a hidden gem until the horrific events that came last November to this sleepy college town. This little town was then cast into the national spotlight. Fast forward to November 2022. Madison Mogan, 
21, Ethan Chapin, 20, Zana Kernoodle, 20, and Kaylee Goncalves, 21, live in a house with two roommates. The roommates, Dylan Mortensen and Bethany Funk, are 19 years old. The students share an off-campus six-bedroom home at 1122 King Road near the University of Idaho. Madison, Zana, Kaylee, Ethan, and their other two roommates were normal, outgoing students. They posted on social media, did well in school, socialized appropriately, and did what thousands of students do every single day. On Sunday, November 13th, in the wee small hours of the morning, Mogan and Goncalves hit up a food truck after an uneventful night out. They arrived back home around 2 a.m. Chapin and Carnoodle arrived shortly before their roommates and about an hour after the two female roommates, Dylan and Bethany, around 1 a.m. Between the hours of 3 a.m. and 4 a.m., at least one intruder came into the house on King Road with a fixed blade knife, a K-bar, or something similar. This intruder made his way to the second and third floors of the home, where he violently stabbed Madison Mogan, Ethan Chapin, Zanner Carnoodle, and Kaylee Goncalves to death. Initially, friends were called to the house, believing that one of the victims had just, quote, passed out. 911 was called and dispatched to the house shortly thereafter. At 2 p.m. November 13th, the university notified students to shelter in place, but then lifted that warning about an hour later. Police and authorities initially speculated that the murders were a crime of passion and then backtracked and told news that there could be several different motives for the murders. Tuesday, November 15th, police indicated they believed the attack was targeted. The public was told that there was no further risk for crime. Students and residents did not believe this information and instead believed that this was contradictory and that they were not being given the full story. Police indicated at that time that there was no signs of forced entry into the home on King Road. They could not provide a reason why 911 was called more than eight hours after the four roommates were killed. They also would not provide information about who the 911 caller was or why the two female roommates were unharmed. The FBI and the Idaho State Police were both called in to assist in this case. Thursday, November 17th, the autopsies were released for the four murdered students. All four students were killed in bed, stabbed in the chest and upper body. The knife was missing, but they found the sheath on the scene. The cause of death was listed as homicide by stabbing for all four of the victims, and they were likely ambushed while they slept. Each possessed multiple stab wounds, as well as defensive wounds, which indicated that some of the victims woke up at some point during the attack. There were no signs of sexual assault. By Monday, November 21st, police announced there was no connection between the murders and a skinned dog that had been found several weeks earlier. They also announced that one of the victims had a dog inside of the home at the time of the murders, which is also very curious. A potential stalker and several nearby stabbings were all investigated and determined to be unrelated. Tuesday, November 29th, five cars were towed from the murder scene and investigated. November 30th, a list of cleared individuals was released by local police. As all of this continued, families of the victims expressed doubts in the ability of law enforcement to solve these senseless murders. Wednesday, December 7th, 
After looking at countless hours of surveillance from local cameras, police announced that they were looking for a white Hyundai Elantra spotted near the home at the time of the murders. Then, Friday, November 30th, police made an arrest. It was Washington State University student Brian Christopher Koberger. Koberger grew up in eastern Pennsylvania in the Pocono Mountains. He was part of a close-knit family. His father worked in maintenance and his mother worked in the school system. He had two older sisters. One was a therapist and the other was a school counselor. Ironically, one of his sisters starred in a low-budget horror movie about a serial killer who murdered a group of young students. Brian was quiet but funny, loved the outdoors, and was an average student with only a small group of friends. He was also said to have been overweight and bullied often, but he did have aspirations of becoming an army ranger. During his senior year of high school, he lost about 100 pounds and was said to have turned his life around, but not necessarily for the good, as friends claimed that Brian's personality changed after he began using heroin. They say he was secluded and self-destructive in recent times, but then he appeared to be getting his life back together, becoming sober, and planning his life out to study criminology. At the time of the murders, the 28-year-old student was studying criminal justice and criminology eight miles from the King Road home. He was arrested in eastern Pennsylvania, allegedly at the home of his parents. He was charged with four counts of first-degree murder and felony burglary. A search warrant was also issued for his apartment. Police recovered the Hyundai Elantra owned by Coburg and bail was denied for obvious reasons. On January 3rd, 2023, Coburger waived extradition back to Idaho and landed in Washington on January 4th. He was immediately transported to the Lataw County Jail in Moscow, Idaho. Coburg was highly educated, working on a PhD, he had a master's degree from DeSalle University, and it has been revealed since the arrest that he was conducting a research project at some point on criminals and their decision-making. He had invited former criminals to participate in his research. Although police really don't know what kind of motivation Koberger had for these murders, there is a lot of speculation going on out there. According to police, Dylan Mortensen, one of the roommates, encountered the murderer on the night of the killings. She heard crying and opened her door several times. She heard a female voice say, someone is here. And then she heard a male voice saying, it's okay, I'm here to help. On one of the occasions when the roommate heard crying, she saw a black clothed figure walk past and out a sliding glass door at the back of the house. She described him as five foot 10 inches tall with bushy eyebrows. Authorities believe that the two remaining roommates may have been spared because of the amount of energy already expended on killing the four victims. Perhaps he'd been too tired to see the other roommate and he may have been in a daze or a stupor. Police also speculate that perhaps he had not expected to kill four people that night. The roommate also reported hearing a dog barking during the night at various times. There's been a lot of backlash on the internet about these roommates and why they didn't call the police, particularly the one that saw the alleged intruder on the night of the offense. But this was known to have been a party house in the neighborhood, and it was not unusual for various individuals that may not have been known to all of the roommates to be in the house at various times for gatherings. 
Police believe that Mogan's room was the first entered by the perpetrator, and that is where the knife sheath was found with Koberger's DNA. His DNA was matched to something found in the trash outside of Koberger's parents' house in Pennsylvania. The sheath had a K-Bar USMC on the outside with the Marine Corps insignia. Koberger's is also accused of stalking the Idaho students at their rental home on at least 12 occasions. Cell phone records also tie him to the scene. Evidently, though, after the roommates heard the crying and other activity outside of their room, both of them locked their doors, which could also explain why they survived this incident. But it doesn't explain why neither one of them called the police until at least noon the next day. Theories currently include some sort of an incel type situation. Evidently, some believe that this is a case of femicide, which is the intentional murder of women just because they are women. Authorities believe that Koberger was familiar with the house and had surveyed it previously, possibly even being on the inside of the home. Others claim that the accused murderer had a heroin addiction and had been picked on as an overweight teen, and thus this was some sort of a revenge action. Brian Koberger is due in court again January 12th, which is this next week coming up. And then last but most importantly, I want to leave the discussion not on the monster who may or may not have murdered four people in cold blood, but on the victims whose promising lives were cut short well before their time. Likely one of the first killed, Madison Mogan was 21 years old. She was a senior at the University of Idaho from Coeur d'Alene. She was majoring in marketing at the university and she was a member of the Pi Beta Phi sorority. She was cute and funny and worked at the Mad Greek restaurant with Zana Kernoodle, one of the other victims, in Moscow. After college, she planned to move back to Boise to get a job after graduating. Kaylee Goncalves, 21, was also one of the first victims police believe. She was the middle child of five children and was from Rathrum, Idaho, majoring in general studies and a member of the Alpha Phi sorority. She already had a job lined up after graduation. She was ambitious, friendly, and outgoing, and she was a lifelong friend of Madison Mogan. After graduation, she had a trip to Europe planned, and she was very competitive and interested in computers. Her new job was supposed to start after graduation in Austin, Texas. It is believed that Kaylee and Madison died together in the same room and in the same bed. Together, even in the end, they are thought to have possibly comforted each other in death. The third victim, Xander Canoodle, was 20. She was originally from Avondale, Arizona, then later from Post Falls, Idaho. She was a member of the Pi Beta Phi sorority, and she was in her junior year at the University of Idaho majoring in marketing. She was focused on her studies. She was a happy student, lighthearted, and always cheerful. She was dating Ethan Chapin at the time of the murders, and they had been dating since the spring of 2022. Ethan Chapin, 20, the last victim, was found together with Santa and was from Mount Vernon, Washington. He was in his first year at the University of Idaho, studying recreation, sports, and tourism management. He was a member of the Sigma Chi fraternity and was a triplet. He loved playing basketball. He was funny. He liked country music and playing sports. In the meantime, the campus at the University of Idaho has thinned out considerably after the murders as parents pulled their students out and took them home, some for good. 
Obviously, this is a very, very sad case. Four very young and promising students taken from this earth well before their time. As this story continues to unfold in the current court system, we will keep everyone posted. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please send us an email. We're at the bfdpodcast at gmail.com. We do put all of the articles that we use for research on this episode into the show notes for the show. Please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild stories. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your very best life. Bye.